Hello, everyone, and welcome to another outstanding episode of the Independent Life Podcast. Sorry to sound so braggadocious, and I know a lot of these introductions, I'm so excited, but this one, I'm telling you, it was such a joy to connect with Monica Solomon Simmons. Monica and I go way back. It was like the first semester I started my doctoral program. I'm talking like 2005, 2006, around that time. She was a student in the class I was teaching. You'll hear the story in listening to this podcast on how we first connected and how we first met. Uh, and Monica and I uh, subsequently went on to work together on service-based projects that used a lot of you know, evidence-based approaches to see how we could best serve people with disabilities. And we spent many years working together. And And I got to say, I learned so much from Monica. Yeah, her role was as a student or as a research assistant to some of the work that I was doing. But that was in title only. Like, she is a mentor to me. I learned so much from her that I continued to, to put into practice to this very day, nearly 20 years later after encountering her. We just spent so much formative time together. It was just... Uh, very impactful in my life. I hadn't been in touch with Monica for, for quite some time until I got this uh, email you know, saying that there's this event going on. It's sponsored by Walmart, and you know, it's being led by Monica Solomon Simmons, the director of health equities and program implementation from Walmart. And I'm like, you know, I knew her as Monica Solomon, but is this Monica Solomon Simmons, the same Monica Solomon that I knew? And in fact, it was. And so maybe after more than at least a decade, maybe 15 years of you know not being in communication with Monica, I reached out to her. Is this the Monica Solomon I knew? And it was. And some communication back and forth. I was like, Monica, I got to get you on. We got to do a podcast together. We, we have shared experience uh, in serving people with disabilities. And you're now doing some amazing work that Walmart is doing in the area of health promotion for people, especially people experiencing health inequities. And it's just everything that our, you know, these episodes have been about, uh, we touch on here. We talk about disability and, and attitudes and beliefs and serving people with disabilities and what that can do. Uh, we talk about social determinants of health, health disparities, health inequities, what are they, and what is Walmart doing about it? Oh my gosh, it's, it's part of the how it's part of their mission and why it's part of their mission. And we talk about the important things that Monica sees in terms of you know being able to really solve some of these very complex issues that are impacting marginalized communities like people with disabilities and how we can address them and very creative and innovative ideas to do that, how community is a very important part of it, how community-based organizations are a very important part of it. And, and, and really, she lays out like the formula on, on how we can really address some of these issues. Then she gets into the stuff I just love hearing, uh, especially from her about what are you know, some of the you know, values and virtues that people that do this work, you know, what drives her, what gets her out of bed in the morning, why she is so inspired to serve other people. She is just an amazing human being who has so much to offer that has taught me so much to put into practice. And so without further ado, I bring you Monica Solomon Simmons, Director of Health Equity and Program Implementation for Walmart. Enjoy the episode.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Independent Life. I am just giddy right now because I am here talking with a longtime colleague, uh, somebody that, oh, man, just I, it's mind blowing that, that that we're here connecting and we get to catch up in real time and uh, during the discussion for The Independent Life. But Monica Solomon Simmons. Uh, we go way back. Um, and, uh, I almost want to say it was like, I don't know, 2006, 2007. I don't That's know. That's it, Tony. Yeah. You to jumpstart my, frankly, career in public health and health education. You were yeah. one of the first that showed me what it means to be a leader, to incorporate community oh and different partners and do it in an innovative <laughs> way. Yes. 2000. It's been, it's been a while. You know, I want to <laughs> see if it matches up like the like first, first time we, we spoke to one another directly. It was, mm-hmm. I, I recall what I believe was the first time that we spoke directly, but I think it was from uh, a class I was teaching called Personal Family Health. Is that what you recall? Yeah. yeah? <laughs> All right. So do, do you remember the time where you, you first came and introduced yourself to me and what we spoke about? I, I yes, I do. I actually Break it recall. Down. Yeah. I gave I gave you feedback, Tony. Yeah, about that's it. The, the right. video. Yes. Wow, that's what I recall. Yes. <laughs> all right, all right. For our listeners, maybe set it up about the video and the feedback you gave yeah. me. Yeah. So you know that we were in the class, and one of the things that I really appreciated about Tony, he used a variety of innovative ways to engage the class. So we had to do like our personal health mission project. We do videos, we do discussions. And so there was a really great video that talked about like health in general. Um, And there were videos and talked about statistics. And I think one of the things that I noticed around the depiction of those that were in color were not the uh, most favorable. And so I think that was the probably the start of my like health equity and health justice burning within my heart. Um, and I gave you that feedback. And Tony, you were phenomenal. You listened, you, um, we discussed it. And from there, I think you gave me an opportunity to present the class and we actually ended up starting a research project. So um, just a testament to everyone, you know, see something, speak up, and you never know how that can just be the start of something great. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you remember that moment too. That was, that, that's the f- moment I, I, I recall first meeting you. And I remember as you were giving the feedback, and from what I call, the video didn't uh, represent uh, appropriately, yes. Yes. you know, the, the yeah. background that you, you, you came from, I believe. And that's and, right. Yeah. And that's you, right. you, you thought the depictions were, you know, um, you know, not best representative of, of, mm-hmm. you know, situations. And, and so it could have been, uh, better. And, yeah. and I hadn't seen that in the video. And, and, and when you were saying that it was like this gigantic aha moment for me. And I remember thinking as you were giving me that feedback, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn from this person that's given me wow. this feedback, like, and, and how it really opened my eyes to like be more discerning and uh, open-minded about the, uh, what I was gonna be delivering to the class and, and, and any class forward. I gotta say, it was like one of the most teachable moments I've, I've ever had as a, you know, someone that has been trying to teach health. And it was a great example to me is that like, um, how often really, you know, it's, yeah, I, I was in the role of a teacher and you were in the role of student, but you were really the teacher and I was a student. And I just was like blown away by, by what you had to teach me at that time. Oh, wow, Tony. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought about that in a while. Yeah. And I appreciate that feedback. I think 
I don't know, as I, as I think about the story and I think about the leaders, I think it really just is an example for, for students that you don't have to really wait, right. Until you get that title or that degree, yeah. like your perspective and your input is important. And then your gracious response to be able to listen and um, to be able to partner and, you know, to even open up opportunities as a result of that discussion. I think it, it really is a space that encourages really listening right. and why it's so important to kind of open up that conversation to the shared pool of meeting, giving people the space to share their perspectives. Cause it's, it's all about learning. None of us are perfect. It's, no. it's a journey. Far from really it. is a journey. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, like, I, I do think being in the, the seat of a learner is always like the best seat to be in. And um, you know, you're talking about leadership and, and, and a book that, you know, I, I continually circle back to now again, I don't know if you've ever heard of Adam Grant, but he's, uh, he's, he's well-written in the leadership realm. He wrote this book uh, about the, the power of knowing that we don't know. And, and mm. it comes from this like, idea is like, yeah, we don't know everything. And, and there's a lot of power in not knowing. And it's kind of like it gets to this place of humility and uh, just being, in a, again, in the seat of the learner and, and always like you know, approaching life from that angle and versus like, I got all the answers. I know everything you know, there is to know. And you know, I'm the expert. And because I fulfill this role of teacher, I should always be teaching. <laughs> and yeah. thus, I don't need to learn more. But yeah, no, it's I think it, it, it's a great place to come from is this, uh, you know, place of humility. I love that that point. And I even think about just the evolution of my career or those in the career, like when you're first out of college, like you said, you think you need to have everything mapped out, right? You need to have all the answers you yeah. need to prep. Um, but as you evolve in your career, like you said, you realize I, I don't have to have all the answers. No. Yeah. I don't have to prove, right? right? Like that's why it's a team and it's right. it's okay. Um, to, to ask for questions and ask for help. 100%. And, and I believe you, you uh, came on as a teaching assistant for that same course, right? Yeah, you got gave me an opportunity yeah. to do a couple of like presentations. And then I became a research assistant yeah. for a program that I was a part of as well, too. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so we worked together. Um, and we'll go in on that, I guess, you know, we'll talk about yeah. uh, the research project, which was, um, you know, we called it Sydney Lanier at the time. It was a name yeah. of a school for kindergarten through really uh, 12th grade mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. a self-contained school for people with intellectual and cognitive disabilities. Um, they would come over to the University yeah. of Florida twice a week you know, and engage in mm -hmm. uh, individual and group fitness activities. And, you know, we, we, we saw that as a... Um, you know, a research project on one hand, we would do pre and post testing on a wide variety of different fitness indicators on, you know, the participants. Uh, we would even do some research on the volunteers from the University of Florida uh, as well. Um, but yeah. it was also service, right? Like we were, we were uh, offering the opportunity for students at the University of Florida to work uh, with basically people that are almost their same age. Um, yep. and, uh, you know, engage in social and physical fitness type activities together. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about what, what you recall your experiences being on this kind of service slash research oriented uh, project. Yeah. And, you know, Tony, it's so interesting when I think about the work that we did, because it was community-based participatory research yeah. and this opportunity where you have 
a variety of partners that are at the table. Uh -huh. You have this large research institution. Uh -huh. You have an amazing local school. You have, like you said, students from both communities are coming to the table. Right. And I think it, it opened up my eyes at a very early part of my career in educational attainment that it really is important to have partnerships. Right. And when you do it in a meaningful way, you can drive value and meet goals from a variety of different perspectives. For example, the University of Florida students, right? Them having an opportunity to have empathy and service with them being the next generation of our medical field, right. you can't get anywhere else. And then working with our amazing students um, that had a variety of abilities and seeing their growth right. physically, emotionally, it was just really amazing. Um, and I, I always carried that experience throughout my career um, and thinking through partnerships and considering diverse communities and those right. of different ability palaces as well too. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to be a leader, right? Yeah. Tell me you let me be like the research coordinator. So I had to create policies and procedures. <laughs> I had to recruit volunteers. Yeah. I had to scheduling. I had to do uh, research. I had to present the research. So yeah. for me, it was just, it made you have the classes that you go to, but the opportunity to do what you want to do from a career perspective and practice early, it was just really phenomenal. Right. Yeah. And, and I love how you unpack that. We think about all the, you know, community organizational, like, you know, community academic partnership, right? So, you know, yeah. you, yep. you know to go along with community-based participatory research. So we had a, you know, a university that worked with mm -hmm. a local school uh, to bring mm -hmm. together, you know, a group of people uh, to, to help benefit their health, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. And, you know, when you think about like the, um, Sydney linear school, the self-contained K through 12 school, you know, they, they had to invest, you know, they, they had to have a bus, you know, bring them over, you know, twice a week, which is no joke. Like, like that's, that's a bus driver plus gas mm -hmm. money. That's a few hundred dollars an hour for a local school. And everybody knows schools are strapped for money, you know, uh, each time to do, um, a, yeah. a teacher would have to come over there, you know, uh, remember Ann, mm -hmm. you know, she was awesome. And so the physical yeah. educator had to come there. Um, and then, yeah, on our side of the fence, uh, at the university, we had to have facilities. Remember us being down there in the O-Dome and the fitness rooms, you know, the North End Zone. Uh, you know, we had to have, you know, get approval for that. We had to, and then you, you stepped in. I, I want to say you stepped in during a time where it really elevated the capacity of the program. Like, I feel like before you got there or maybe your first semester we got there, it was almost like one-to-one -one volunteer, mm -hmm. you know, to That's participant. Right. And within short order, it was like four to one, you know, which was awesome. Yeah. We had like four university students for each participant, which allowed us to, like so much capacity. Like each participant, we had roughly like, say, 15 students from Sydney Linear coming over. It really elevated like our capacity to serve uh, on, on so many different levels. They had like their own entourage and each person like kind of had their roles. And you created a lot of that, you know, roles and capacity and you know, like, I mean, data forms to, to workouts, you know, prescription to so many different things. And like, you're right, that was like a really good um, service learning uh, way to, uh, to really teach leadership. Like that, that occurs outside the classroom. I think that's what you're getting at. It's like, you know, this is the real, then the classroom has its place, but like, you got to yep. go put it into practice. And, and that is definitely 
where I think like, yeah, I, I was learning too, right so, alongside with you. That's why it's such a joy to have this interview with you is like that time was <laughs> as formative for me, at least as informative for me as it was for you. Yeah. And I, I think about it to your point, like we, we really did a lot during that time. We wanted to one, increase the research rigor of what we were doing because the mission was so important, right? And right. we wanted to show how the results were really impacting the students that we were looking to serve and how that approach using a service learning approach can yeah. impact the next generation of the medical field. And right. so we did, we wrote those policies, we created a variety of roles so that the students not only got a chance to have hands-on uh, training, we knew their re resume was important, their CV, so we gave them titles. Right, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. a lot of thought. I, you know, as I think about the listeners, I just, I want to give encouragement to anyone that's in that time period right now with their programs. Like, if you were in the thick of operational planning, <laughs> yeah. creating timelines, creating policies, creating job descriptions, yeah. getting approvals, just definitely sending you encouragement just know that that work is important because it really does create the foundation right. to help you scale and just like tony mentioned yeah. to really accelerate the impact that you're having so just giving much love to all my operators yeah. around the world right yeah mm -hmm. yeah like yeah. fully created like an organizational chart you know with all the yeah. different pieces and and what I, I i loved about what what your efforts entailed was it it, it what i kind of bridged you know, these two sometimes separate but need to be integrated realms like so yeah. uh, the, the the actual doing right the, you know, helping and serving people and getting all the resources in place, the human material, even financial resources in place, mm -hmm. all the policies approval and like doing the doing the applied. Yeah. But also, from what I recall, some of your research had to do with program planning and what theory mm -hmm. social cognitive theory we were using yes. you know and all these theoretical things and and and, and i i find it is rare to have somebody thread the needle between both like being you know theoretical uh and conceptual but also applied like a lot of times i feel like people are just kind of in one of those lanes uh and yeah. but rarely can thread the needle and do both and you were able to show me that both can be done and both need to be done like both are have their value and importance and and uh, to be able to do both i think is just like a a very important space to occupy man tony uh, you're, you're making me go down the i want to say road. yeah i want to say too your work um also revealed a theory uh, social contact theory, if I'm not mistaken, right? Didn't like, yeah. And that was like on you on your own, you know, like, like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, I'm starting to see, if you don't mind, maybe uh, if you, if you can recall, like the, the, how social contact theory, what it is and how, what you saw this program doing University of Florida students working with, uh, you know, people who have intellectual and cognitive disabilities, how that really kind of came about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there were a couple of a couple of aspects that really stuck out. So one was this this concept of really being able to create role models, right? right so right. as you have the University of Florida students being able to demonstrate and show some of the exercises, you saw our amazing students from Sydney Linear being able to expand their vision um, and just the sense of like diversity and unique perspectives. I think another part that came out of our work was the self-efficacy theory, yeah. like understanding that that was a huge, huge part of the 
um, improvements that we saw, someone's uh, belief in their capacity to complete a task. So just that encouragement, showing role modeling, being able to provide those reinforcements, we saw that really did impact and improve some of the health outcomes that we're seeing there. And so never underestimate like the power of mindset (laughs) and whether somebody someone believes that they have the ability to do it. So I think a lot of those fairies played a very unique role in some of the outcomes that we were able to see. Yeah, it, it, it's funny as you 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 break this down. I I, I can visualize that uh, graphic that we had that was like at the top was like self-efficacy theory, and it was made up of you know behavioral yeah. like beliefs, observational learning, reinforcements, yeah. and and all these things that really went into it. And again, like you know this program, you know uh, I think the conception of the program decades before we came onto it and and put our spin into it was really meant for um, helping the fitness of people with cognitive intellectual disabilities so that they. They could, you know, do the type of work that they most likely would be doing after they graduated high school, which was, would be physically, you know, require physical exertion, you know, it could be, you know, working to, you know, stacking boxes or, you know, kind of janitorial or landscaping or like these things that would require fitness. And um, unfortunately, people with intellectual cognitive disabilities um, don't have the opportunities to be as physically active as people without them. And so this program mm-hmm. went out of its way to, to really up the fitness levels that they would be right. in a place that they could do the kind of, uh, you know, employment that they're capable of doing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so we would, you know, see these gains in, you know, cardiorespiratory, muscular strength, flexibility, muscular endurance, and it would be wonderful. And then we would see these other kind of benefits that were coming mm-hmm. out of it. And, and from, yeah. from what I recall, I, I, I you know, of course, you know, uh, them being surrounded now with you being on there four other peers that were, you know, allow, you know, their role modeling and also giving them attention. And it really helped to boost their confidence, their sense mm-hmm. of well-being, quality of life. But then we were seeing from, from the university students, we were talking, I remember a lot about like, yeah, you know, I, I, I came to, to volunteer today and I was so stressed out about, you know, the yeah. tests that I have coming up and, you know, my boyfriend or girlfriend's giving me a hard time and, you know, this, that, and the other, yeah. and the Gators might not win this weekend and blah, blah, blah. You know, they're coming in there all stressed <laughs> out. And they would say all of a sudden after they helped to go volunteer, they, they, they would leave going, I feel like so good about myself. I, I, you know, I could, you know, I could totally crush this test and, oh yeah, this, you know, drama in this relationship is nothing. It's petty. It's, it, it was mm-hmm. right-sized by working with somebody like that. And, you know, it, it just like, we, we were seeing like too, I think how the university students really had more in common with yes. the, the participants that were coming who had intellectual cognitive disabilities. And you and I know coming from the health fields, like, you know, being able to connect with people that are different than us and to communicate mm-hmm. in a way that they can understand and act on is so important. And having that sense of like, oh my gosh, I've never communicated with someone who has autism or Down syndrome. And yet uh, through interacting with them, I, you know, I, A, I can communicate with them and B, I have got a lot in common with them. We have similar interests. And that social contact theory, you know, kind of thing Absolutely. really took root, you know? Oh man, Tony, I think yeah. I think you you hit the nail right on on the head. And as I as I think and reflect, those I looked forward to those hours and being able to look at that was absolutely the bright spot of of my week. And like you said, it really grounded you that maybe some of these petty things I'm doing with as a student, you know, that's not, that's not the bigger, biggest issue. And 
And so it, I, from my perspective, I think it created and built more well-rounded students and professionals 100%. Um, because they did have exposure and in a way that was meaningful and non-judgmental and it was right. fun and we were working on a goal together. And like you said, really, it, for us, we really even did our best to even out the power dynamics right. as well. To, like you said, understanding that we have students that had variety of special needs and, and differing abilities, like leading exercises. So we really tried to create this ecosystem where you're partnering together. Everyone is learning from everyone. Everyone has strengths versus just, hey, this is this, this one special group right. that's coming to teach this one special group. Like it, we tried our best to try to even that out. What are your thoughts on that too? Yeah, um, no, it, it brings me back to how we open this. And, and yeah. I agree. Like, you know, it's kind of like, oh, just because I'm in this role of, you know, of student doesn't mean yeah. that that's what is really going on. You know, that can be mm -hmm. easily reversed or we can be on a more of an equal playing field. And I kind of think yeah. that's, that's really at the heart of why you and I gravitated towards like community-based health promotion, mm -hmm. especially like when we work with the community, we don't come in there thinking, well, we know it all. We're the experts and you can learn a lot from us. It's kind of the reverse where like we come in there, which at the time was pretty revolutionary. Like at the time it was like, no doctor knows best because I got a degree or, you know, higher education, like certification. I have a diploma. Um, you know, uh, you should listen to me. It, it was the reverse. It was like, oh, you all are the ones living day to day in, in knowing yourselves and knowing each other. You know, you teach us. And, and, you know, is there anything we can do to help facilitate if you need access to resources, whatever it may be? That's what we can maybe provide. And we can, you know, just like be supportive in, in helping them figure out what's the best ways to address some of the things that they're interested in addressing, not necessarily what we're interested in addressing. So, yeah, I think uh, that's great. I, I also want to pause and just give an amazing kudos to all the team members and the volunteers and all the students. And like you said, the sitting linear right. leadership, because it really was a team orchestrated effort yeah. to start that. And, and Dr. Stopka and her, oh, her yeah. vision is well too. Right, um, right. You know, Tony, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I think even in healthcare, and the public health field, I think we have a greater appreciation around lived experiences. Right. And we have a greater appreciation now around like local community leaders and stake leader, right. uh, stakeholders and community advisory boards. It's right. it these things have been around, right, for years, but I, I think there is an even greater appreciation that um it a degree is not the only way no. that you can show yeah, I, value and, and excellence. Absolutely. Like you said, like they're around now. And I think the sh there has been a shift over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. But like I said, like when yeah. you and I met in 2006, like I wasn't hearing as much jargon related to like patient centered. You know, I went to the mm. VA and in, in sh you yeah. know, short order, they were talking about veteran centered. And they were talking, you know, mm. like really about, you know, community centered, community based. And, and uh, it is good to hear, you know, it's more common now to hear about advisory boards or, you know, kind of like the, 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 the value that we place on lived experiences and, and different perspectives yeah. and, you know, who's at the table, who's not at the table. Yeah. Um, it still has a long ways to go, uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't think it was like as prominent, uh, you know, as it mm -hmm. is now. So it's wonderful that, you know, a lot of that has really manifested over the last really, two, you know, a couple of decades now. 
you know, that, that, that has been around. But um, let me ask you this. You have all this wonderful service-based leadership research. You presented and published uh, on your work related to Sidney Lanier. You know, how did it help to shape your attitudes and beliefs about disabilities? Disabilities, like where, you know, given this is a podcast, you know, that, you know, we do talk, focus a lot on disabilities. Like how did, how did it help you either personally or professionally in your, your view about people with disabilities? Yeah, it, I would say for me, it was just an, an awareness and the importance of continuing to provide space in whatever capacity um, to advocate for increased opportunities. Mm. And again, just thinking through how can we partner together to make sure that there are a variety of spaces for different perspectives and creating inclusive spaces. I, I, again, right. I just, I think about, you know, some of my time in Sydney Lanier um, and just hearing their stories and seeing their growth and seeing their, um, their strengths. It was just a reminder that like, we all need to have a space for we're included and being able to, mm. to do it in a way that's meaningful. So it's, um, I don't know, right. it also taught me this importance of empathy and never doing right. your best not to go in with judgments, but knowing we all have biases, but checking those biases because right. people, you know, will it, people always surprise you and people will challenge you. So it was just, it kind of, it shook yeah. up my perspective because I think I had always just come from like one perspective and just being able to have it expanded. Yeah, no, I, same here. And, and, and again, yeah. it kind of goes back to the social contact theory. You focus through your efforts with the program. I, I think that's what it was, was a lot of the students who hadn't worked with anyone who had an intellectual yeah. or cognitive disability, which they can present differently with social, right. you know, kind of cues yeah. are different and the way they communicate is different. And if people haven't had that experience, naturally they can maybe feel timid or what do I do? What do I say? Um, and, and have those kind of biases. And, and I think, uh, you know, what I appreciate about what you're saying is, is like you developed more self-awareness of biases. Yes. Like it's not yeah. that in, in like, creating that separation so anytime like and how i take it what you're saying is the same with me it's like you know maybe if i walk into a situation and i'm interacting with somebody i don't have a lot of lived experiences and in interacting with i can immediately see uh you know have the self-awareness that like oh that thought was a biased thought oh that thought was a little bit you know judgmental or generalizable or you know you know and, and it, that just self-awareness and space you know, yeah. is so critical for me to like, okay, that thought is probably invalid. Um, yeah. I got that space versus just being the thought, just being that judgment, just being in that kind of thing and running with it. It's given me that like, you know, space between, you know, thought and response. Yeah. Well said. Self-awareness. <laughs> I think self-awareness is huge and being able to check it. I think it just also reminded me that there are other people other groups in the world right, right. That, that have perspectives that have needs that have amazing strengths and just there are times when you absolutely you know you want to center your perspective and there are times when you need to completely take a step back sure. and being in a position to learn and to you know be an advocate in a way that is meaningful to the group so 
just being a, I don't know, 18, 19 year old, it was, it was, it was great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. And, and, and it's so needed. Like even for me, I, I still like to have that self-awareness requires me to be present with my thoughts. And, yeah. and I think neuroscientists like say we have like 60,000 thoughts a day. And like, so to be present for every single one of those thoughts, it's, it's, it's a practice I'm trying to be, get better at. And, and so I think like that being present with our thoughts, having that self-awareness mm-hmm. can really give us the space needed for those, you know, implicit, you know, biases and, you know, judgments mm-hmm. and generalizations we're, we're all we have the, you know, subject to having. You know, I agree. Yeah. I am not a mental health professional, so I need to say that. <laughs> I yeah, did, same here. I did get, yeah. um, I did learn about even this concept of like mind traps of like catastrophizing that uh, when you're thinking through a situation, like, do you automatically think the worst of right. that? You see that thought, you challenge that thought, you have a sense of like, what are the physical right. um, sensations I have? What's the emotion? What's the urge? So right. it really talked about to me. It's important to be aware and present so that you can challenge those thoughts. Yeah, that's a fantastic mm-hmm. point. I, I, you know, as you're saying that, I immediately go to, from what I'm aware of, uh, evolutionary psychologist, you know, talk mm-hmm. about how we are wired, you know, through evolution, like it, it kept us alive to have a negative uh, bias towards a situation. Mm-hmm. Like a, you're, we're always like looking for threats in our environment, which kept us alive, you know, perhaps as a species, as we're evolving, you know, like, oh, that rustling in the bushes is a lion when it was a bunny, you know, or something like, you know, like, so like, and, but yet like we've now are carrying this over into, you know, a time where, you know, the threats might be more social or emotional. Uh, you know, we walk into a room, are people judging me, you know, or they think this about me or that about me or, you know, where we might, have, and like, so uh, you and I shared offline here, we, we, we are both, you know, you're a mother and I'm a father. There's nothing yeah. more than uh, being a parent of kids that triggers my catastrophizing response <laughs> than having kids, right? Like, oh, they just right. sneezed. Oh, they, you know, they got some disease, you know, they got, oh, when they go to school today, you know, are they going to get bullied? You know, like there's so mm-hmm. many, like, nothing has challenged me more uh, in terms of not catastrophizing than, than yeah. you know, the environment, my kids, what kind of world are they going to inherit? You know, uh, uh, uh. Yeah, I could go all day. And, and for, for mm-hmm. me, you know, I think it, it is very helpful to recognize, like, I, I, I at least, and, in, in, you know, have a perhaps disposition to looking at the, what is the negative situation versus like, okay, what can I be grateful for here? Or, you know, some other antidote to it. I love it. Yeah, no, I I think I saw somewhere on social media, someone said, like, how can I challenge my fight or flight so that my body doesn't think this email is a threat? Right. Like, how can I just, right? yeah. <laughs> just my body calm down? Um, but I think it's the awareness. And even as you, uh, you know, as we talk about working with individuals with disabilities or varying needs, like if someone's going into a circumstance and they have their urge to kind of clam up, oh, I don't know what to say like have an awareness of what that feeling is and then challenge yourself. And you don't have, just because you have an urge here, doesn't mean you have to go into that urge. You can challenge yourself to be better. Right. You can challenge yourself to take an awareness. But I think it is just starting off with understanding your your biases, understanding the propensity that right. you have, you know, understanding catastrophizing yeah. all those things so that, um, you know, you can be open. I love that. And, and, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think part of it is, is recognizing like, I am not my thought. Like yeah. I, it's a thought. It doesn't mean that it's me. 
And, and again, having yeah. that space between being the thinker yeah, mm-hmm. um, or the thought, you know, and like yeah. I'm capable of having thoughts. It doesn't mean I need to go, you know, even something that, you know, could evoke, you know, pride, like better than mm-hmm. other people, like a bad pride, not a good pride, uh, right. if there is a good pride, but like, uh, or envy or jealousy, like, uh, you know, the thoughts of like, we're, you know, we're subject to comparing ourselves to people. If I compare myself better, I might be subject to pride. Worse, yeah, you know, I could be envious or jealous of other people, but that doesn't need to be me. I can challenge those, you know, challenge myself to not get into social comparison, challenge myself mm-hmm. not to have those, you know, like, okay, I had a thought, but do, does that where I, where I want to be? Is that the kind of person that I want to have? Can I intentionally create new thoughts? You know, I don't know. Ooh. Yeah. You are preaching. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, you're, I'm just pinging <laughs> off you. Right. Yeah. I don't know. No, I, I, I absolutely love it, Tony. I, I think it's so important. And it's like, this is a thought. Okay. What is the, what is it's how your emotions, your thoughts and behaviors oh, all together. So connected. And so the thought is like, what is the urge that is happening? Okay. Well, what's the pro and the con of that urge, right? Okay. I could do this or I can make a conscious decision to go take a walk. I can right. make a conscious decision to call. And so, you know, I, I love that. And even as you're talking, I'm thinking about one thing that you helped me learn and you shared this with me when I was in college around this concept of learned helplessness, oh, yeah. right? Like that's something that sometimes people have to overcome of not always just seeing yourself as a victim, always learned helplessness. Like, how do you even fight that on? Like, I want a new paradigm and being able to shift their mindset right. in a different way as well. So like you said, a thought is a thought. It's not who you are. It doesn't always define right. you. And you really do have the power to make different choices. Such a power. Cause like, I love how you connected thought to emotion, right? So like, yeah. and emotions drive so much. Like we, you know, we, we, yeah. you know, we want to be accepted. We fear rejection and you know, those thoughts can really drive everything. And then the behavior, like you like connected mm-hmm. all the three of those uh, beautifully. And yeah, I think, I think there is a lot to, to learn helplessness. I, I, and even though like I can define it and I, I see it in myself to this day, I'm still, you know, uh, I, you're technologically adverse, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm still that my face kind of commenting person about social media, uh, you know, like, and, and like, I, and, and, and thank God, you know, I, I have a, a place where I can surround myself with people mm-hmm. that can make up for my, you know, learned helplessness in areas. Like that's a, mm-hmm. an opportunity for someone to have a job, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm learning <laughs> too, sir. I'm on that journey as well. We're both on yeah, that Yeah, yeah, hire out my weaknesses, you know? And, and so I'm in a, <laughs> in a place like that, that that can do that. But at the same time, am I doing myself any serve, you know, a disservice by, you know, not just jumping in and learning something I'm capable of learning or doing something yeah. I'm capable of doing. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of personal growth to, to do in that area. And then, you know, and, and as we're having this conversation about thought uh, and emotion and behavior, I can't help to think about like, you know, the, the environment we are in with social media, how outrage travels so quickly over the internet and, and it can capture people's thoughts and certainly drives emotions and then, you know, kind of behaviors and those kind of things. And, you know, we're, we're there, it's like so instantaneous, like that place to go to be separate uh, from the thought, yeah. to have that self-awareness, to pause. It, it's so challenging. So, you know, how, what, do you, what are your, what are your, what are your uh, thoughts in that area when it comes to, you know, social health and, and where we're at mm-hmm. and you have kids now and thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. Uh, is there anything there that kind of resonates? 
Yeah, um, I, I kind of, I, as we talked, Tony, wanting just to generally give encouragement to leaders in the public health space and, um, you know, those working with different communities and listeners as well. I know it's been a tough couple of years. I think, you know, it is important for, for people to have a sense of just what you need. Um, if you need to take a break, if you need to call a friend, right. if you, you know, need to get connected, I, I think it really is important for us to know that we are not alone and that there's community. Right. Um, I, I have the opportunity to do a lot of work in the maternal and child health space. And we say the saying a lot that it takes a village. It really does. And we say that at the village perspective of like the actual people helping mom and baby, but also like the organizations right. <laughs> helping mom and baby. So, you know, kind of back to your question around social health and being connected. I think the big thing is for people to know that they are, you know, they're not, they're not alone. And even if they may feel that, right, like thinking through how you can seek out resources to help is is really important because it has been a couple tough couple of years yeah i'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up um, and you you might have seen this you know, in in the spaces you occupy but certainly covid has like totally yeah. uh driven a lot of people out of the healthcare you know fields like mm -hmm. we you know are seeing that now in the human service industry like, like you know in, in nonprofit organizations serving you know uh you know marginalized populations like we're, we're i'm seeing this in the center like we're receiving people here you know, we've always received people here that are in very difficult situations, but there just seems to be mm -hmm. added layers of stress and anxiety um, to the mm -hmm. people we're serving. And, and the, the, the people that work here and serve a lot of empathy and a lot of heart. Mm -hmm. and, and, we, it, and we're kind of wired in a way that we, you know, we, we, we don't just clock out and all of a sudden we don't think about the people you know, that are in difficult situations. We bring this home with us. We carry this with us. And, yeah. and, and it's kind of like since COVID, everything seems like it's constant chronic crisis mode. And, mm -hmm. and it's just like it's not sustainable. And so I'm really glad that you're bringing up this awareness that uh, especially people in the healthcare field and public health and in the human services industry, it's been a difficult time you know, serving. Yeah. So, so you given that you're, you're one of those people, like, what do you do to, to help fortify yourself? You know, with, oh. <laughs> with, with like, you, yes. know, you know, being able That's to. That's a good question, yeah. Tony. Absolutely. I, so I have understood now that self-care mm. and rest is not a luxury. It is a requirement. It's not selfish. Self-care is not selfish. Yeah. It's not selfish. Yeah. And that it is, you know, really seen as an emergency in some cases. So if right. I, you know, have to take a walk, if I have to take, you know, time off or if right. I have to spend, like, those are things that are really, really important. I actually recently just picked up um, like running and uh, walking for miles, which I never thought would be like <laughs> a big thing for me. Right on. Um, but That's I listen awesome. to my, my yeah, I listen yeah. to my sermons. I listen to my motivational speaking. So to answer your question, um, for me, it's been self care, um, and I would say it has taught me that the way that that you care for yourself may look different in different seasons of right. your life. So right. when I was younger without kids, maybe taking myself out to a restaurant right. and, and getting some great food. But at this season of life, just walking and getting my steps in right. and running allows me to clear my mind and think. So as I think about our listeners, I would say really 
assess where you are in your life right now and what are your needs. What about you, Tony? What are you, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah, no, hmm. I, you know, I, I start my day, uh, I get up and, you know, very early, you know, before the kids are mm -hmm. up because that's just where the, 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 the time for, you know, where I can really kind of set my intentions for the day. Um, and mm, it's walking it. or running and seeing the sunrise um, and, and really being very focused on, you know, um, you know, gratitude. I always want to start the day with gratitude. Uh, you know, even if I'm going through difficulties, like what is it I have to be grateful for? Um, how do I want to show up in my day and the different roles I occupy, whether it's father, you know, husband, um, son, brother, friend, director, uh, citizen, you know, how, how do I want to be like, you know, set that in, set, setting that intention for the day. Um, and, and so that act, and I do that as I'm active. I don't do that. I know a lot of people can meditate doing that. I think I do that as I'm moving. Um, and, like and, and, uh, and I just show up better for the day if I, you know, there, there's been a lot said about morning routines. And, and so I'm definitely a morning routine, you know, kind of person. Um, I build those walks throughout my day. So um, a lot of the work I do is behind a desk or meeting conference rooms and, you know, presenting and doing stuff like that. So yeah, I, I will intermittently I take walks throughout the day. Uh, I think that's, mm -hmm. that's a very important part of it as well. Um, I, I, you, you, I think you said something about, you know, you have your motivational, you know, kind of speakers or I don't know, books or yes, I, I, <laughs> I, I consume, uh, a, a lot of that as well. You know, people that are like in the you know, thought leader space or like mm -hmm. in self-improvement or, you know, th th those kind of things, uh, I, I, I do. Cause I feel like there's a lot of like ancient wisdom even and, and philosophies. And for me, I, I, I find that, you know, creating a, a person's own philo philosophical, um, you know, anchor is important because like, you know, for me, you know, life can blow me around, but if I always have that, like, you know, these are my three pillars of this, that, and the other, and, uh, it's important before I, uh, you and I got on here, like you, you had talked about vision and mission, you know, being important. You know, like I, I come up with my own personal vision statement or mission statement and I'll, I'll, oh, I'll, I'll return to that. It's kind of like that philosophical anchor, uh, you know, uh, eating, I think, right. Not being on a blood sugar roller coaster, if at all possible is always good you know, to be able mm -hmm. to do, I do journal journaling. I find mm -hmm. to be very important. It's a, its own form of meditation. So yeah, I got a recipe of stuff that I'm always like, you know, it's in the bag for social supports, right? Like we need each other yeah. and, you know, having those people that we can be vulnerable with and, you know, uh, open up to it's huge. So it's a, lot. Oh, <laughs> it's a lot. I love that the vision and mission statement. I have used vision boards for, you know, the past couple of years. Yeah. I'll put pictures of where I see myself and what I want to do. And Powerful. I mean, those things have completely come true to the extent of even like the the celebrities that I put on, I've got a chance to, to really? see them. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's just important to have, right. remind yourself of your goals and your dreams right. and to, to be expansive in that. Um, but I really like the mission statement. So that might be something. I'll yeah, try we, we had, um, I know you do this in your work, like, you, like mm -hmm. so at work, you know, every three years, we come up with a strategic plan. And we'd spend a lot of time and effort getting information from everybody. And we always refine our mission statement, we come up with our three year vision uh, statements, we come up with our values. And, you know, we, we have the goals and objectives, and we put all this work into it. And it dawned on me as I was putting all this work, I was like, I don't have any of this personally. Like, I don't have my own mission statement personally. I haven't really called out what my values are I in, you know, goals. And if I've had goals, they've been all professional. And then I, I brought this to my wife who does similar work. 
And I was like, what about our family mission statement? You know, what are our family mm-hmm. goals? What are our family, you know? So we started bringing this home. It's like, we're going to do all this work, you know, at work. Why, why shouldn't this, shouldn't we be doing this in our personal life? So that's where it kind of started going. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that. Yeah, I think it's important because it, it, what are your values, right? right. Where do you Call see them out. yourself in a year, three yeah. year? We do, we do some of that as a family. I actually have an Excel file that has like <laughs> some milestones. I like, I, love it. I, love <laughs> I used it. to call myself like the chief uh, memory officer, the chief memory making officer at home. Um, but we do, I want to start to institute that and, and dust off some yeah. like you mentioned around the mission statement. That, that's great. And just the process of doing that with, with the, with the, <laughs> you know, a, a partner or the kids, like just the process is the outcome because here we are talking yeah. and, you know, having this really meaningful, deep discussion. And, you know, uh, regardless if those, even those goals or whatever get achieved, it's just the process of doing it together that I, I find, you know, brought us closer together and which was the outcome, you know, that we ultimately I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, very important kind of stuff. So, so we are kind of talking like missions and visions and, you know, yeah. all these other kind of things. So, so bringing it back to something you, you, you breezed by earlier that I want to dive into is like, you know, what, what role, you know, can organizations play in, in meeting the, you know, say the needs or, you know, the, the, the desires of a community? Like what, what, what is the roles that oh, organizations I- can play? Oh, absolutely, Tony. Absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting at at Walmart, we have this phrase and this approach where we call shared value. Mm. It's where when you are focused on a mission or a new initiative, thinking through bringing partners to the table, where the goals that you do allow you to have a shared goal, a shared result that is meaningful across the board. And so as organizations think about really impacting the community, I would say these are some of the ways that they could do it in terms of a framework. One would be really understanding their own organizational strengths. Mm. So for larger companies, let's say you may have a strength and from a finance perspective, maybe you're able to fund, maybe you have a physical assets that an initiative could use right. where you could help events or workshops, well, then can you partner with a community-based organization that may have more of the local knowledge and some of the stakeholders as well? So I would say that would be one of the first things when you're thinking of how you can focus on the community, taking that first step. The second would be really thinking about the type of partners that you want to focus on and what are their goals. So some of that is health outcome based, some of that may be capacity building, some Mm -hmm. of that may be exposure. So really developing a plan that allows for synergy across the board. The other areas I'd say is really prioritize where you want to start and make sure you mutually agree on those measures and those focus. So yeah, as you think about either the disease state, you want to focus on the health outcomes, making sure that's important to all of the parties at the table, obviously reviewing things such as community health needs assessment or local data, but really making sure everyone is on board with that. Um, And the other areas I would say organizations can really be attentive to the partnership, make sure you have the resources and time to it and being willing to pivot. And finally sharing your lessons learned. I think that's a huge one. Like, uh, not only the quantitative, but what some of the qualitative ways that you're learning. Right. And like we used to say, null results are results as well, right. too. So 100%. if you try something, yeah. right? 
and it doesn't work, it's okay to share it. So to answer your question, I think the ways that organizations can help with their community is one, really doing it in a way that's shared value and really trying to even out that power dynamic where you're not just the organization coming in to save the day, right? right. You're doing this amongst coalitions with partners and really sharing some of those resources. Yeah, I, I, God, you got such a good answer there. You hit on so much there. So, yeah, I do think the shared values, right? Like, what, what do we all have in yeah. common that brings us together? And then, what are our unique strengths? Like you were mentioning, like you know, yep. one, one organization might be like we, you know, we got you know some maybe financial backing or some material resources. Mm -hmm. Where in order, another organization might be, well, we we know the people. You know, they come to us. Yep. You know, and you know, we're we're like often like in our case a community-based organization nonprofit might not have the financial material resources but we have the connection to community and like kind of finding where our you know strengths kind of like line up and can be compatible and integrate with one another being able to do that it's kind of like the that seven have you heard of that seven habits of highly successful people that the steve yes, cubby yes. that's one of his <laughs> things is like find the win-win so we got these <laughs> shared values you know what do we bring to the table that's unique what do other people bring to the table that's unique uh, it's a win-win-win. So each organization yep. wins, and then the community wins. And and to me, we're like that's that's a a great alignment of of synergy where people can you know have that. And I, I like also what you said about appreciating the uh, the partners at the table mm -hmm. for what they do bring. To I think uh, that's a very important thing. It kind of ties into gratitude. You know, having oh, gratitude mm -hmm. for you know all the different kind of things. And you know, we're just uh, greater than the sum of our parts. You know, we come together and we can do these kind of things. Our impact will be multiply, multiply versus just uh, kind of being adding, you know, together and those kind of things. So, yeah. You know, well said, Tony. Like we had a an opportunity. I'm so grateful and so gracious for it to host a, an event called Care for the Caregiver at Store uh, 538 in Gainesville, Florida, where we had this two day immersive experience where just phenomenal community-based organizations came and shared their resources. We did workshops. We put together um, co-branded materials of books with a variety of just amazing companies and partners. And it, it couldn't have been done with just one organization. Like we really needed everyone at the table right. to be able to put together something that was meaningful to allow us to love on and appreciate right. and really show just admiration and gratitude for our caregivers. And so I think that is a big, big thing. And even too, when you think about partners, include community-based organizations and, right. you know, include nonprofits, include health plans, include right. retailers, include schools, like be open to the type of partners that you want to bring to the table. Absolutely. And just like you said, anyone who knows me will tell you, like, I think community-based organizations are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they bring a lot to the table. And so, you know, never diminish what right. your organization or, or what you even bring to the table because it's right. all valuable to get the mission accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the mission of uh, Karen, tell me, mm -hmm. tell me about the why behind the, the initiative to care for the caregivers. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we had an opportunity to to offer this an inaugural program at this particular store. You know, we honed on, on this particular store and location, looking at some of the data and even the shifting dynamics. And for us, we wanted to really make sure that we were increasing access to resources to caregivers. Um, at Walmart, our mission is to help people save money and to live better. And so care for the caregiver was a part of that second part of our mission, really helping people go live better. So we had resources uh, from a variety of ways, not only from health um, to uh, mental health and physical health, right. and just even ways that they could interact. And again, when we think about a mission, it was really being able to partner alongside just such an important population that often you know, goes unnoticed. Right. Um, and they really care for a lot. As I think about the caregiver, their burden right. from a financial perspective, a mental perspective and physical. So it was important for us to amplify that uh, particular part of our amazing customer base um, and just to, to support them. That's awesome. Like, and, and by the way, like I'm not asking because I don't know as, as much. I'm still learning, but um, yeah. you know, caregiving is, you know, for, for many people with disabilities, you know, a very important piece of the equation even for myself you know um, I have a vision disability can't drive so my wife has to you know take care of some certain responsibilities as far as getting you know material goods food everything else like transporting the kids um, taking on you know some roles and responsibilities I'd love to be able to do uh, that requires a, the, the use of a vehicle or to be able to assist them with you know homework for me I'm on that continuum of you know, kind of like having someone at home that's taking on more responsibilities and having to give more care perhaps than they would yeah. if they were with somebody that had better vision and and could do those kind of things and then you know there's other people that require different kinds of caregiving support and I fully recognize that the importance of it from a social emotional you know standpoint is beyond like quantifiable priceless it's just you know to have somebody that you you know and love uh, to be able to support, it's just, it's huge. It's everything. And it keeps people living in the community. That's like our role as a community-based organization. We want people to whatever extent possible to avoid any unnecessary institutionalized care, assisted living facilities, nursing homes. They have their place. Um, but if we can, you know, in, in personal care and informal caregiving is a huge piece of that. I want to say here in Florida, the amount that the state saves every year because of, you know, families being that caregiver, friends being a caregiver, um, it saves the, like tens of billion. I want to say it's around $30 billion a year that, you know, of money that is saved by the state because there's these, you know, caregiving supports that are in place. And, and as you probably know, like, you know, this, this home care, whether it's, you know, helping people with the day-to-day -day chores and daily activities of daily living to, to health, any care supports, or it's companionship. Yep. There is so many different roles that are fulfilled by, you know, personal caregivers that are not getting paid to do it, that are informal. And even the ones that are getting paid to do it, it is just like invaluable service. It just really is. And it's not easy. Um. Well, well said, Tony. I, I think it's so important. And even, you know, during this process, um, you know, of learning and listening, it, it there really is a big impact on caregivers and what they often have to sacrifice right. as yeah. a, a labor of love. Um, and so that really was the heart of the mission as well, too. Like you said, can we carve out some time to even start this initial, uh, initial pilot to help to think about how caregivers can be appreciated in ways that others 
are appreciated. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely aligned yeah. with that. Tony. Yeah. So many people I know that are like in, um, in the situations like this where like, you know, they have, um, aging parents who, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll say, instead of going to assisted living facility, come live with us who are also raising kids. So you got like three generations under one roof, which is done in a lot of cultures and that's great. Um, and, uh, at the same time, I'm also learning from the people that are, you know, doing this, that they're having, you know, having to give up maybe a job or going back to school or taking that trip mm -hmm. or that vacation. And they're like so much that is, you know, put aside in order to, to care for the people that they love. And it's not easy. It can be a strain on the, you know, family nucleus. So I'm really happy to hear Walmart is really taking that seriously and is focused on that. I think you alluded to it earlier. The second part of their mission there is to live better. So maybe mm -hmm. dive into what that's all about in, in terms of Walmart's yeah. mission and your role yeah. uh, and talk about your role you know, as, as a director of a lot of these initiatives, you know, to, to address how Walmart is promoting living better in its communities. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be an honor to, to, to talk about that. So at Walmart, I have the distinct pleasure of serving as uh, the director of health equity program implementation. And so really have been tasked with thinking through innovative ways that we can help you know, our customer base in terms of reducing the burdens around social determinants of health and all social determinants of health means is, you know, those are the conditions where we live, work, play and pray that could possibly impact our health, everything from education to transportation to housing. Um, and so we're thinking through innovative ways. We're doing a couple of areas, one around maternal and child health, the next is uh, around cardiometabolic and the third around food insecurity and nutrition. And so we've had just a great opportunity to partner with um, an amazing company called CareSource to be able to offer and think through innovative ways around our community workers, mm. uh, our directed spend technology where customers can have access to a card that has certain items that would allow them to help with their health. Um, Plus. So in summary, at Walmart, as we think about Go Live Better and our over 5,000 stores across the nation, wow. we are really committed to being able to help those, again, not only save money and live better. Another part I want to emphasize is Walmart Health. Um, we have our Walmart Health clinics in select states around the nation that really has state-of-the-art technology and being able to have increased access to healthcare access to communities as well. Um, there are over 4,000 of our stores that are in medically underserved communities mm -hmm. that have access to pharmacists. So Tony, as you talk about Go Live Better at Walmart, it really is important for us to think through how we can increase health access how can we be innovative in our services and our programs to our customers? And just how can we make, you know, things easier and help people save money and to live better? Well, you know, it's interesting how, um, A, I love how you define social determinants of health. Say that again, it's the work, play, and pray. What I'd That's say, awesome. yeah, the conditions where people work, yeah. live, pray, and play. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, <laughs> breaks down to education, employment, mm -hmm. you know, social economic status, housing, yeah. transportation, mm -hmm. social support. And, and, you know, I feel like, you know, that kind of mission statement really does go hand in hand. I, were we watching the documentary Unnatural Causes uh, where we were together? 
It may have yeah. been. That sounds but familiar. They, they, they talk about a lot of the, you mm-hmm. know, Sentinel research that's done in public health that shows there is a, you know, a, a linear relationship between social economic status and health outcomes. And, you know, so when you think about the, the mission statement of Walmart is like saving money, you know, which mm-hmm. helps, you know, people's social economic situations and living better. They kind of, in a lot of ways, go hand in hand. Uh, and, yep. and, and not always, but you know, it can. And, and so I really appreciate how it threads the needle there. You know, I just want to say as a caveat, um, we are one of the states where we have health clinics within Walmarts. And I want to say, um, you know, I've gone in there many times to do blood work. And, uh, when I go in there, you know, there's this, this touchscreen thing to be able to, you know, uh, you know, say that you're here, you know, for your appointment. And you know, there's a couple of things to go in prompts. And I always get nervous when I go up to those things because of my vision and I can't really see. Um, and Walmart has like this auditory, you know, accessible for people with low vision like myself to be able to utilize. And I got to say, that's one of the, my, 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 my things of when I, you know, go into a health clinic, whether it's someone behind the desk that I got to ask for help to fill out the forms, or it's like mm-hmm. kind of this kiosk, you know, to, that's digital to use. Like that is a source, even to this day of stress for me. So I was yeah. like, I got to say kudos to Walmart for making it so accessible wow. <laughs> for when I went in there to mm-hmm. be able to like, I, I'm here for my appointment. This is what it's for. This is what I'm doing. I'm getting a blood plant, you know, this, that, and the other. So uh, I, I want to say that, you know, I appreciate the healthcare there being accessible for, for someone like me coming in there with low vision. Like props. That's incredible, props. Tony. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to share that feedback with the yeah, team. Yeah, I feel please, like I can say that. Please do. We did not pay him to say that. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> this is unsolicited. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you got your mission there, but I kind of want to go in. So we kind of unpack social determinants of health. Your position there at Walmart being the director of health inequity and program implementation. Let's kind of unpack what that title is all about. But let, let's define our terms, perhaps, as we've, you know, yeah. you've defined social determinants of health. Define health inequity. And, and I also see another term that you know, gets floated around regarding health inequity, but I think there's some nuance to it that you can might be able to help us out with, is health disparities. So maybe, maybe walk us down that uh, avenue of, you know, health equity and health disparity. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. There's a bit of a, a, a buzzword there with the social determinants of health, health right. equity, and health disparities, but they, they all are very distinct. As I think about health equity, I would say health equity, if you're thinking about uh, this race a bit, health equity is really the goal. It's where everyone has the potential to really attain their full potential from a health perspective. So everyone has this opportunity to attain their full health potential and no one is disadvantaged from achieving that because of their social position or any socially determined circumstances. So from a health equity perspective, that's really the vision. When I think about social determinants of health, that's one of the vehicles of the cars that we can use towards that of health equity. There are political determinants of health. There are other mechanisms, but using, thinking through how you can increase access to health, increase access uh, to housing, how do you make transportation a little easier for those, that's the way that you right. get to equity. And then when I think about health disparities, that's a way that we can measure, frankly, you know, how we're doing against that particular goal. And so health disparities are unfortunately the the differences and the gaps and frankly, preventative differences that we see in either disease, injury, or violence outcomes um, that are really often experienced by underserved populations. So any differences we see in statistics 
against different groups, whether that be racial, ethnicity, um, ability status, those are what you would determine as health disparities. And so my particular role as director of health equity program implementation is really designing innovative ways through partnerships and other means towards that goal of health equity and doing it in a way that's culturally sensitive, culturally relevant, culturally competent, and, and frankly, it's, it's meaningful uh, to the organization. And so as I shared with the work that we did around care for the caregiver, we had over 1,500 people um, come to those events across those two days. That's huge. We, that's a big I turnout. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you so much, Tony. We yeah. had an opportunity to do some work in Georgia in March around a baby days event, and that was focused on coming alongside to reduce Black maternal health disparity outcomes that we're seeing. We had community-based organizations, there are workshops, and I think we had over 1,200 people there as well, too. Wow. So we're really thinking through um, the events are just one aspect of this amazing platform that we're focused on building to, to be able to, again, focus on that mission of helping people go live better. So th thank you for that. That, that yeah. That's a wonderful explanation. So wh where do you see some of the, you know, when we get into the, the specific areas where you see health disparities impacting a certain group of people, which are some of the ones that, when we're t so we touched on caregiving, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps uh, is one of them. Where do you see some other issue areas uh, that you got you know, particular attention or focus or, or need uh, within certain groups of people that, that are, yeah. you know, you're, you're like, man, we got to really, you know, bring more equity, you know, into this area that has a disparity. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking, Tony. I would say there, frankly, we're, you know, we see disparities, unfortunately, across the board, across disease types. Um, one that really stands out to me is within the maternal and child health space. Uh, the CDC actually recently reported that Black women are two to times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women, um, and with most of the maternal deaths being preventable. And you know, what is really shocking about the statistic is that the heightened risk spans all income levels and all educational levels. And so as we think about helping to, you know, improve these right, uh, frankly disturbing and sad statistics, it really takes a multifaceted approach where we're thinking through how do we increase respectful care and how providers work with patients, really hearing their feedback, hearing their concerns, centering them. How do we increase health access and access to providers that look, feel, see, and look like the communities are mm. looking to serve? Right. How do we think through policy? How do we create experiences where people see represented. So there, what I'm learning in this work, there isn't a one size fit all solution, right. but it really is having multiple partners at the table and being able to take a multi-level framework. Um, one of my favorite theories uh, is the social ecological model, right, right Tony? Yeah. Well, right, where you think about the individual level, the community level, right. the interpersonal level and the policy level. Right. So I would just challenge leaders, if you were, as you understand and you see some of these statistics, there's often this urgency to act and you should, but really being thoughtful about using multiple levels to be right. able to, levers to be able to, to help towards that mission. 
Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of that, you know, thinking about, okay, what can then, you know, we do as individuals, like you and I were talking about self-care, you know, and the yeah. things that we can do as individuals, but right. then like we need interpersonal supports like caregivers yeah. And, yeah. And, and other families or friends or like I was saying earlier, someone I could be vulnerable with and, and talk to. But then we talked about the importance of community. And, and, mm -hmm. and all the different kinds of cultural, very important, you know, kind of attributes that it might have, the affiliation, belongingness, and yeah. then uh, the greater society, you know, that it's made up of all these different communities. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and you mentioned politics and policies <laughs> and, and, and all kinds. Like, for me, I love the socio-ecological model because I feel like um, it, it, it's a good map that makes, you know, that helps to compartmentalize all the complexities that go right. into a lot of these outcomes and we can like better you know, silo them a little bit, you know, to be able to do it. Um, I, I really like how you honed in on um, the, the issues related to maternal and childcare for me. Um, you know, I, I see that being like almost like, you know, if we can intervene, you know, in that time, prenatal, post, and it sets a, a really trajectory, right, for, for yeah. like, you know, an early childhood development from zero to three and all the things that go on with, you know, the brain and, you know, that the, the stressors that, you know, mothers and fathers and it's just such an important space you know, to be able to, 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 to drill down on. So I, I really appreciate that example. Um, and, and, you know, addressing the social determinants of health uh, in that area, very important. But I want to run something by you that I found interesting. There was a, it was research that was done, you know, looking at uh, health outcomes for mothers. And I think it was like, you know, uh, you know, health outcomes like during pregnancy and, and, and as childbirth and looking at you know mortality rates of mothers giving birth and it showed the differences between uh women and that were black and white and, mm -hmm. it, and it corrected for so some some of the social determinants of health so you know women that were black who were giving birth were you know who had you know higher education and more socioeconomic status you know tend mm -hmm. to have better outcomes than black women who didn't but compared to white women they still like and they, they were looking at like doctoral level Black women who gave birth still had the same mortality rates for childbirth as white women who were high school, like graduates. Like it's still, it was better, you know, to, to have a higher, you know, education relative to its own group, their own group, but compared to the other group, it still wasn't there yet. And so they were looking at like beyond social determinants of health, you know, what, what else is going on there that there's these disparities and what can be done about it? I could tell you what the researchers were postulating, but I was wondering if you had like any kind of yeah, lived experiences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the research is, is pretty, pretty uh, clear. And uh, obviously, there are, you know, multiple factors. Um, that's why I stressed really across all income and educational levels as well. Um, similar to what we talked about earlier, thinking through uh, provider biases right. or biases in general. Yeah. And so there is an amazing campaign through the CDC. It's called the CDC Hear Her campaign, where it really is focused on thinking through how we can help around Black maternal health disparities, one, by empowering the patient that um, her her perspective is valid. If she's right. feeling something, she is right. She should say something. She should advocate for herself. But also on the provider side, that like when a patient comes through your door, um, 
and says something, you need to act on it, like listen right. to them, you know, center their needs as well too. Um, so I, as we think about, you know, disparities, things such as institutional racism, personally mediated acts of racism, um, bias, prejudice, um, yep. access to healthcare, right. those are all factors that are contributing to what we say. Right. And that's why I really stress that it is, it's multifactorial and multi-level right. that yes, we can tell moms to go walk uh -huh. <laughs> and exercise and we should, because that is focused on the health behaviors, right. but there are other factors that are contributing to those statistics, and we should have that equal enthusiasm as we do in the health health behavior side. So, yeah, Tony, it's, you nailed it's, it. Yeah, <laughs> at least what they 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 postulated was um, uh, the access to healthcare was different in the sense that um, you know black women mothers uh, were more likely to report uh, perceived discrimination. You know, mm -hmm. when we're receiving health care, the health care yeah. providers not looking like them or sharing lived experiences like them. And like you were saying, that's a very important, you know, factor, mm -hmm. um, you know, racist, you know, kind of uh, feelings and sentiments mm -hmm. being projected towards them and biases mm -hmm. and maybe patient blaming, you know, saying like, you know, it's their fault or not listening to yeah. them. And yeah, so those those were identified. And so 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 for me and, and, and as I'm trying to learn more about it, so it's like. When, when you give me like a social determinant of health to address, like, okay, you know, it seems so much more straightforward, not easy to, to in, yeah. increase someone's educational attainment, social economic status, maybe addressing issues of housing. Maybe it's, you know, uh, providing them the materials like they might need to be mothers, you know, and stuff like that. Like that's mm -hmm. concrete. The, this other part where like, mm -hmm. how, how do we like, it's almost like, you know, how do we change the hearts of the providers? You know, yeah. like that they may have these biases <laughs> like we were talking about earlier. Like right. and, and that's more like subjective, qualitative. But for me, like mm -hmm. what that research was showing was like that's still the factor of why, you know, a, a, a black woman mm -hmm. who has a doctorate level, high socioeconomic mm -hmm. status still has the same health outcomes as a white woman who's you know graduated high school at, at mm -hmm. a much lower socioeconomic status. It's like for me, I'm like, how do we, you know, change something that's less concrete, like the hearts and attitudes and beliefs of mm -hmm. people that are yeah. within these systems? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, you know, I, I recognize that it is again, multifactorial. It's, it's, it's a lot to solve. And I also want to just thank all of our um, you know, providers across the nation. I think everyone is 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 working hard. It it, right. it takes creativity, frankly, Tony. Um, some of the work that we uh, have done at Walmart has been around like um, racial equity summits, where we talked about some of these statistics to associates um, across the nation. We um, have thought through providing continued education where you have an awareness of some of these statistics. Um, we've done um, some kind of empathy role play exercises as well so that people are able to understand some of the needs of their underserved and most vulnerable customers. So to answer your question, it, it, it takes creativity. I think one is sense of awareness and being able to have people have access to what's frankly going on right. and then helping to helping to give suggestions on solutions, but really empowering, um, you know, leaders, providers, healthcare administrators from variety to really have that groundswell of, hey, what can you do in your community? for this to be able to, you know, help to, to lessen some of those biases. 
I'll share as well too at Walmart, you know, we're thinking through this concept of belonging as well mm. and being able to have diverse perspectives at the table um, as we move forward. So as to your question around what we can do, I think it really is starting off with an awareness of the statistics, what's happening as you think about changing hearts, minds, right. continued education, empathy exercises, and frankly, the use of uh, storytelling and large yeah. yeah, I have my own personal story of, right. you know, um, unfortunately being on the negative side of the, the health disparities in the maternal and child health space, mm -hmm. you know, being in the NICU seven days with my sweet, sweet baby um, and seeing that. And I've shared those stories and I've had other leaders be surprised. And so I think the power, just like we started, talked about at the beginning, your perspective is important. Right. You speaking up is important because you never know how that can change the heart and minds of someone that can cause this ripple effect to, right. you know, frankly, maybe even save a life. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and I'm glad you brought the point up that I really think like most healthcare providers are, are aiming to do the right yeah. thing. And you, uh, when I think about like the, um, the challenges, because they operate in a certain business model that they're required mm -hmm. to, um, they have certain things that, you know, they're required to do that might not always lead to the best bedside manner or patient outcomes and yeah. you know, those kind of things. Not to let that off the hook at necessarily, but like yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, it's both system and it's both like systems are made up of people and yeah. it's very yeah. tough. And that's why I was kind of asking the heart question because like, yeah. you know, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, how do we change hearts and attitudes and, you know, those kind of things. I do feel like the, the key's in there somewhere. Um, yeah. And it, it's, you know, not that addressing education and social economic status mm -hmm. and housing and transportation is an easy fix by any means. <laughs> it takes a ton of work. But like, and that there's like this other yeah. side where we all have our attitudes and beliefs and the way that, yeah. you know, the, the, the nature of politics, you mm -hmm. know, plus, you know, the, as we were talking about earlier, social media and way yeah. that can, you know, taint like real important conversations like this. Um, yeah, I feel like those are all like you, you were saying multifactorial you know, kind of yeah. things that are going in where I, I do feel like, you know, like I, I and I love to hear you say that, you know, Walmart's very much in, in, interested in belongingness because I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of that, you know, that, that that's driven, you know, social media yeah. or political discourse is, mm -hmm. is has to do with our natural inclination of like we do want to belong. We fear rejection. Yeah. We want to belong yeah. to a group. Um, but, you know, how can we do that, I guess, without becoming divisive? How can we yeah. belong to different groups and be united? How yeah. can we do that? I agree, Tony. And yeah. I, I, I like that you challenge because you're asking the questions that need to be asked. And it's important for people to dive deeper and look at some of the numbers. And, and like you said, I think at the end of the day, as we are all working together on this, right. everyone's perspective is needed. Uh, there is a theory that talks, it's called the curve cut effect where um, when you're on the sidewalk, they were able to change it to allow for improved like wheelchair access. And by doing that change, many people were able to benefit from bicyclers right. or moms with right. um, strollers. So I think it just emphasizes why, again, it's important to create some of these solutions to serve and center a particular population. Everyone benefits and right. and with thinking through belonging, having diverse perspectives at the table allows you to have a mo more robust, comprehensive solution. Right, right, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think that's at the end of the day, it's kind of like what we were saying with the University of Florida students working with the Sydney Lanier students. Yeah. Like when we get together, 
we have so much more in common than we do different. And I'll use an example of where I see this being really important. So, you know, one of, one of the areas of, of a lot of division and discourse are in politics. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, people from different political views uh, may, you know, cast aspersions and generalities about the other person. But when mm -hmm. we, you know, uh, go out and build a wheelchair ramp, we, we utilize mm -hmm. many different yeah. people to do that. And they yeah. come from different political, you know, backgrounds. They don't argue mm -hmm. about politics when they're doing that. They don't right. like, you know, debate each other, have these, you know, negative, uh, you know, things that you might, we might see in social media or the news. They're there in union and fellowship mm -hmm. serving. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more that they have in common. And they see that and they mm -hmm. engage in that when they're out there serving. Yes. You know, it, like all that other petty, divisive, like I feel like there's like this, you know, cabal of like, you know, social media conglomerates wanting to, to see our differences and be outraged by them versus like what we were seeing when we serve people is that like, no, we have way more in common than we do different. We have way more union than disunion. And uh, for me, it's like through that lens of like what you're doing and Walmart seeking mm -hmm. to do in these spaces is by mm -hmm. serving people. And through that service, mm -hmm. I feel like that's where the union uh, comes in and that sense of belonging can really be mm -hmm. had. Yeah, what, what I can tell you this, what I can tell you is this, Tony, that as we think about shared value, as we think about helping others live better, coming along with a shared mission, a shared vision, that really creates either a sense of belonging or is able to help help a community or underserved communities using it in a really collaborative way is really the direction yeah. to go because it takes a village. No one yeah. person can do this. No one organization can do this. So you're right. Coming together is is really what's going to help and bind us. Right. In all of this, and and kind of the you know the position you occupy is being a leader. You know what what are some of the things that you would want to say about like leadership, um, people that occupy positions of leadership uh, that could be used to help encourage them to create mm -hmm. these innovative ideas and put, implement them and you know kind of uh, iterate on them as as we go along. You you have so much to offer. You have so much leadership experience. I'm constantly <laughs> trying to learn how to be a better leader. So oh, I'm interested to hear yeah. what your take is on this. Yeah, I would say the first thing, just as a leader, like you and I talked about, Tony, I take the time to understand your personal goal and your personal vision of how you want to do this right. work, right? Is it through service? Is it through data? Is it through research? Really being able to think through who you are, the value and the strengths that you bring to the table. Right. And so when you're sitting at the table, you have such an insurance and awareness of who you are that you're able to serve in a greater and bigger way. And you're able to not shrink. You can bring your full self. So I think that would be the first start. Um, organizational Organizations generally, like I shared, using that shared value framework, um, understanding your organization's strengths, making sure you prioritize on goals and um, diseases or conditions that are of interest across the board, using uh, data to be able to drive the work that you're doing. Right. That's another thing I need to say that um, we don't want people to have to continue to tell their trauma. A lot of the statistics are there. People, right. particularly like, right. in Black maternal health disparities, yeah. I often tell people, Black women have told us <laughs> through research, yeah. through like we we could start towards you know the the solution, um, <laughs> and then we can prioritize the work that right. we're doing compare right. those results. Um, so right. that, that would be the second, um, and I think the third way is just 
really be creative on either your funding mechanisms or how you do things. So let's say, you know, if you have given grants for a longer period, can you think about maybe shortening the period? Can you think about expanding that? Right. Can you think about bringing partners at the table? Like check in to see if what we have been doing hasn't worked. Do you, can you create space in your organization for innovation? There's a term called intrapreneurs, where it's this concept that you have leaders within your organization that all they're really given is like white space to come up with new models of engagement. So create that space, rally around them, but leave some space for innovation so that you all can pivot in a new direction if what you've been doing isn't really giving the results right. that you want. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I love how you like started this out as like an understanding like who you are yeah right i i find that this is such a powerful like place to start like you were talking about re, you know consuming a lot of motivational and, mm -hmm. and leadership kind of stuff and what i find in there is it's like you know to be a better leader or, or someone in entrepreneurial entrepreneurial i love that term uh, mm -hmm. spaces it's not like well here's the latest marketing strategy and here's how to you know set up a you know your finances and accounting software and blah 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 which those are important technical skills right. i have right. Right. what a lot of them a common theme is is like well who are you mm -hmm. like what really drives you what are your values you know yeah. you know uh and for me um you know that's such a profound deep like dare i say spiritual question to ask like who mm -hmm. am i and for me that is an evolving answer it could evolve yeah. year by year, day by day, month by month, decade by decade, uh, season by season. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for me, I, I find that to be a very important question to ask a, a lot of myself. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like how you were saying, like, we kind of know what the uh, answers are, not to put people through the trauma of having to retell and tell their right. stories again. And, and like you and I were trained that like, where do you start? You'd start with a right. needs assessment. You got to always concentrate. And, and for me, maybe it's a factor of having experience. Like sometimes I cringe when I hear that because like yeah. how many more needs assessments do we got to go right. through to tell us the same answer we've been hearing, you know? So, so I, I, I chuckled when you gave that and it was coming from, from that kind of space. We're so trained. Let's go do another needs assessment, you know, and do another <laughs> needs assessment, which it's hard to argue against, but at the right. same time, when well, I guess you and I have been around that block so many times, it's like, yeah. We kind of know the answer. Like, let's, know the answer. Yeah, a, a, a colleague of mine calls it admiring the problem. Like oh we're really good at admiring the problem and, and breaking it down. Problem, yeah. We idolize the problem. Yeah, yeah. you're right. We can sound right. so smart breaking it down, but then it's like, okay, um, I have a cavity. All right, mm -hmm. we know this. All right, now I got to actually go do the work. I got to go brush my teeth and floss every day. You know, and that can be like less, uh, maybe. Uh, engaging or captivating versus like let's you know get the diagnosis <laughs> i don't know yeah. so i was kind of uh, that's why i was kind of chuckling on that but um I, I i do like your idea of like this innovation and being able to mm -hmm. adapt i do feel like that has happened like in the the tech or entrepreneur spaces like you know the, in the in the private market you got to iterate or you die on the vine you know you mm -hmm. you got to like kind of like have a very short runway to test your product or your service and then you, you got to adapt it and like how can we and maybe in the human services area we're we're a little slower maybe perhaps on iterating and innovating and you know when we have especially big problems like affordable accessible safe housing mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. how do we do that and where the solution could look different depending on the zip code you know, that people yes. come from and, and those kind of things. So I, I like that idea 
um, you know, and how we can be, you know, better about uh, doing that for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's important and you support those individuals and, you know, create resources and give them back and with, but right. we, we, we want to be innovative um, and in a way that allows us to, to be able to move forward. Right. Right. So um, go into that, 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 you know, initial at the top of your answer there, the, the, who am I part? Like, who would you say Monica Solomon Simmons is? Like, like who would you say that you'd be willing to share? Like, is you, as it relates to your inspiration and drive mm -hmm. to help people? Like, that's mm -hmm. really at the center of what, what I've, from the time I met you to, mm -hmm. to now, like, you really want to serve. And, and not just serve anybody, but, like, serve people especially that are at the margins, that are needing mm -hmm. perhaps some of the most service out there. Like, who is it about you that is driving you to do this kind of work? Oh man, Tony, this this is good. That's the deep question. I I would say that Monica Solomon Simmons is a connector. Mm. And she is someone that is able to see patterns in her life of uh, different issues, different um, barriers. And she wants to bring uh, organizations and partners together to be able to solve a particular problem and do it in a way that has dignity and this mm, power. Right. I think Monica Solomon Simmons is someone who's naturally an empower who also focuses on expansive vision. So if I see you're at an individual level, I see your potential, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you the resources. I'm going to, as the young kids will say, gas you up. <laughs> so <laughs> you're right. you know, <laughs> that like you can do it. Um, and then I do that on the organizational side as well, too. So in a connector, someone that is in, so a person that empowers others, and then to an expander of vision, I always see what is today, can we have more for tomorrow? Wow. And what can we do to have more? And that has always driven me from even my personal circumstances of living in, you know, low income and a single mother and mm -hmm. being able to say that my current situation was not a predictor of my future that oh. allowed me to have a bigger vision. So right. that's who I would say Monica Solomon Simmons is. Tony? I love it. I love it. <laughs> Connector. Have you, have you read um, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, The Tipping Point? Oh no! Check it out. Now he he specifically calls out. You know he categorizes different people that are able. Tipping point being, I guess nowadays people would say when something goes viral, you know it tips. Mm -hmm. You know like where it takes a lot of work to get to that point to where all of a sudden it gets over the hump or there's a tipping point. But he talks about one of the more integral um, positions into getting something to the tip is connecting people, especially mm -hmm. people that have, have, like you were saying earlier, have certain strengths in certain areas, but aren't the same. Bringing them together can really help to synergize and on a multiplicative you know, kind of level really make things tip. But I think you would. Tony, I used to joke. I said I used to call myself a bridge, but people walk over bridges. So I'm ah, not a bridge. <laughs> nice. I'm a connector. Connector. And and think about, you know, our mutual mentor, uh, Dr. Christine Stopka. Yeah. You know, she was yeah. that, you know, she and she was that person that, again, like kind of connecting the theoretical academics at a university with the doers who are actually applying and doing things. And, and a lot of time, the, the people that are the theorists and, and, and the, you know, laboratory scientists 
weren't actually in the, the world applying. And a lot of times the people in the world applying weren't using like sound, theoretical, conceptual, yeah. socio-ecological, self-efficacy, social contact theory, community-based participatory research, all the stuff that we're talking about. So to thread the needle and connect those two, you know, is I think a really good, you know, kind of full circle you know, kind of place to come to with connecting. But um, so it's so powerful, Tony, I, I was just going to say, I, I agree with that, like that role modeling is what even helped expand right. my vision, of the possibility of the work that I do here that it, it doesn't have to just be one entity doing this, right. you can do this in collaboration with others. Yeah. And you can break down those silos. So yes, Dr. Sokka is the original. Huge. Yeah, uh, the OG. <laughs> so talking about, you know, who you are, and, and, you know, how you go about doing it. Um, so, so what do you think, like, whether it's for you or for leaders, what are some of the, like, either the virtues or values that are needed to do this kind of work? Ooh, okay, Tony, <laughs> I would say the first value, like we talked about is really having expanded goal and vision and just a view that things could be better, whether that's natural optimism, whether that's growth mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It's a growth mindset. Um, I think to a respect and an appreciation respect. for lived experience. I right. think that that is really important right. because as you do work, yes, like you said, theory may say one thing, but when the rubber meets the road, right. sometimes it's different from what people yeah. say. That would be the second. And I think the third would be, frankly, perseverance and mm. an appreciation that every season and story and trial and win that comes through your life, all of that works for your good to be able to do the work that you're really called to do. So there was a portion of my career where I was crunching numbers, Tony. I was right. doing analytics and Excel files. And I needed to do all of that right. <laughs> so that when I stand up my programs, I have a very attuned keen to how we set up our analytics and how we look at our right. outcomes. So I would say, give right. yourself the space to have a longer runway in the work that you do and appreciate every view that you may have on this work because it will just make you a more well-rounded health a public health professional, healthcare professional, medical professional, whatever way you serve, it allows you to be more right. well-rounded. Don't discount the little, I think I'm trying to say. No, yeah, no, you gave a great answer. Like I got, I was writing this down because I was like, I need to brush up in these areas, but optimism, respect for lived experiences, mm -hmm. uh, the perseverance, you know, resiliency, you know, kind of mm -hmm. like angle that you comment from, which I think leads to the, like, kind of like this endurance, you know, to, to play mm -hmm. the long game. And to and to be in it for a while, but uh, um, and that adaptability, which goes along with disability, I imagine, is probably you yes. know a, a big part of that, and you know the, all, all those are needed. And, and the appreciation where you kind of ended it with, like, I see being synonymous with just gratitude. Like, you know, how grateful are you for you know being able to to do the kind of work that you do for who you're doing it uh, for, you know? Like, it's just it's like what a gift. You know, for us to be in a place of service, you know, to be able to give to other people. It's just like, uh, it, it, it is a place of privilege, you know, it really is, you know, to be able to do this. Yeah. Genuine gratitude. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm just so thankful for this work. I'm thankful for this podcast. I'm thankful yeah. for just 
um, just everyone who is moving towards health equity, creating right. better experiences for those with disabilities, those and uh, underserved communities, marginalized. I'm just I'm grateful that yeah. there is a space and a moment uh, to be able to do this work in a meaningful way. That's a great shared vision. We talked a little yeah. bit about shared visions peppered throughout this podcast, but having that shared vision and shared value and you know, for me, that gives me the optimism, you know, in, 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 in the state of humanity and the world that we're in and the challenges that we have faced that we will persevere, you know, yeah. and be able to do it with a, with a bit of resilience and gratitude in our hearts. Absolutely. Tony, this was great. Yeah, grace. Monica. Golly. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a joy to, to, to be able to reconnect with you and to be able to do it in this, this space here. Um, and, uh, it, you know, what, what I find... Uh, is a hallmark of a, of a true friendship and a true bond is that, you know, w when there's a, a bit of time in, in between mm -hmm. connecting with somebody um, and then when we do uh, eventually connect, it's like we just talked yesterday. Like it was yes. like there was no gap. <laughs> there was no gap or space uh, in, in between. And so uh, I, I certainly feel that way with you. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I look forward to, to staying in contact with you and yes. connecting and you know, uh, who knows, like I would love for, for our worlds to, to continue to connect and in, in service to others, you know, especially. Yeah, those absolutely. Yeah. And I just got to go to a kudos. Tony walks the walk, the talk. And so thank you, Tony, for the impact that you've played on my uh, career and just being able to, to help challenge me to be a more well-rounded, um, thoughtful uh, public health professional. So thank you. This, this was wonderful. Well, right back at you, Monica. I, I gotta say yeah. like, you know, I, I look up to you as a mentor. I really do. Like, you know, from the time that, you know, you introduced yourself to me with a great aha moment to see, uh, so much of what I needed to see at the time and to, to work alongside you, uh, with our research and service and, you know, everything that we did there, very formative, uh, you know, in, in my learning and, and I continue to, to put it in, what I learned from you into practice to the best of my capability. So I just want to acknowledge you for, for being the great teacher uh, that you are to me. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. Last thing I just want to say is to the listeners, you all are important. We appreciate you. Love you. Hang in yeah. there. You're valued. What, what you, what, who you are is needed in this world. So continue right. to shine bright. Well, mm -hmm. Thank you, Monica. Well, thank you for bringing that uh, bit of sunlight into my day and to my experiences that, uh, that I continue to live. And, uh, you know, until next time. Until next time. Thanks, Tony. Onward and upward. Take care, Onward Monica. Thanks, Tony. Ciao. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.